Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Many corners of the national park system are expected to be jammed again this summer. If the parks ever were a secret to the American public, that secret has definitely been let out of the bag. One question for those visitors, how many will become lifelong park visitors and lovers? And here's another question. How many of the youth that visit the parks will be so smitten with the experience that they'll embark on a career path that allows them to work in some fashion in the national park system? This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. In a minute, we'll be back to explore those questions. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Do you love one-click shopping? With our partner, Interior Federal Credit Union, you can earn rewards just by making online purchases. You're missing out on rewards points if you're not using their Visa credit and or debit card. By adding these cards to your online shopping cart with Amazon, Walmart, or other shopping retailers, you can earn a point for every dollar you spend. Binge watching a lot with streaming services like Netflix and Hulu? Use their card for recurring payments to earn points as well. Visit their website, interiorfcu.org, and read their blog for more details and how to apply. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. National parks have seen a rush of visitors to them really in the past year with the COVID situation. Everybody wants to get outdoors where the air is fresh and the they can keep their social distancing. And um, we've got quite a mix of visitation from the very young to the very old. And we also have a lot of youth, um, let's say from high school into college age. And um, it's a perfect opportunity to get those youth interested in national parks and possibly a national park career or a career tied to science in the national parks, whether it's geology or botany or fisheries or paleontology or archeology. span to help explore that question of getting youth interested in national park careers or, or careers in science, we're joined today by Professor Ryan Sharp and his wife, Julie Sharp, from Kansas State University. Welcome to The Traveler, Julie and Ryan. Thank you. Thank you. Hello. Thanks for having us. Glad to have you. Glad to have you. I mean, one thing that always comes up over the years is, is how to get more youth involved in the national parks. And um, it sounds like you're trying to do something through a, a program you've created called Parks and Pines. What can you tell us about that? Yes, sir. So Parks and Pines is, uh, is an organization that 
Julie and I have created in the last five or six years and frankly just kind of started out as something that was an Instagram page and a logo. Uh, it was just something that we did for fun because Julie and I like to travel. Uh, we have, you know, two kids and we take our kids with us when we go to these places. And one of the things that we, we often do too is, is we take them, we, we find a, a local brewery that we're interested in at the parks. And those two things kind of seemed married together for us, at least in our heads. So over the last year or so, as, as the idea has progressed, we have started to find that there's an opportunity to work with community to develop scholarships for students to do research or something project-based in national parks or protected areas. So that's kind of where we're at now. We got a little sidetracked because of COVID, but uh, we're really starting to get back into that now. But it's at, at the heart of it, it's really just trying to share Julie and I's passion for parks and protected areas and giving students a little bit of funding to, to pursue their passion or maybe spark that passion that, that they may not have yet. Yeah, and you've got some interesting background uh, with the Park Service to give you some credibility, so to speak, with your, your students as well as to be able to explain the actual on-the-ground experiences that they could encounter. And, and Julie, you worked at uh, Shenandoah and Grand Teton National Parks? Yes, I did. Well, what did you do there? I did interpretive programming at Shenandoah. Actually, I was an SCA intern for a full summer and worked Student. full-time. Student University. Conservation Association. Yep. So, yes. Yeah, Student yeah. Conservation Association. I, the best part of the job, which Ryan is whispering at me, is that I got to do birds of prey programs. So I worked with live. Um, we had a screech owl, a barred owl, and a red-tailed hawk. And I got to do programming with those, which was something that I learned makes public speaking much easier. When you have a bird on your arm, people will look at that and not you. Not really hear what you're saying, probably. <laughs> Um, and then at Grand Teton, actually, I took a turn and was working in admin doing budget tech work for their facilities management division. What an exciting change of path. It was, it was quite a change, but living in Jackson and working at Grand Teton was, was 100% worth it. Yeah, that, was, that was a place-based move. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of tough there in Jackson. I mean, you got that scenery that just uh, to die for a lot of people. Yeah. It's a difficult place to live. It really, well, it's an expensive place to live. There's a big problem going on there. And, and Ryan, you worked at uh, Acadia National Park for a while. Yeah, yes, sir. I, I was a recreation technician, so it was a seasonal position, uh, which was actually uh, a partnership between Friends of Acadia uh, and Acadia National Park. So my position was actually funded through Friends of Acadia because the Park Service didn't have the resources for, for me to do my job. But my job there was to help with trail maintenance, light trail maintenance, to talk to visitors about Leave No Trace, LNT, uh, the seven principles, to educate people about how to travel responsibly while in the park, and, and really just make sure that I was there to help visitors when I could. So I, I walked a lot. I think I walked three or 400 miles, which uh, is actually quite a few in a small park like Acadia. But it was, it was a great opportunity for me, and I learned so much about how visitors interact with a park, which, mm -hmm. which kind of led me to you know, the, the career path that I'm on now. 
Well, that, that's, a, that's a huge question that uh, a lot of people want to know what the various answers are, is what, what brings people to the national parks? What are they looking for? Um, some years ago, um, my youngest son and I went to Lassen Volcanic National Park and took the uh, trail to the top of Lassen Peak. And we got up there. It was like a party atmosphere. People were taking pictures. There was good cell coverage. They were sending photos across the country. They were drinking beers and whatnot. And I'm not sure that's the prime reason that people go to the national parks for, but everybody's got their different ideas. Today's younger generations, and, and I'm an old man, I'm <clears throat> in my seventh decade, how do you how do you capture their attention for a science-related position in life? You know, it seems that a lot of kids, you know, they go to the national parks and they want to get selfies, you know, whether it's with Old Faithful in the background or a bison in the background. How do you how do you capture their attention? Well, maybe maybe we should call our kids up here and you can ask them that question. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, 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 Kurt, I think if I had the answer to that, I'd, I'd probably uh, be a much wealthier person. Um, it, it's, it's a great question. I honestly, I don't think I don't, there's no one answer. Uh, and, and frankly, personally, I don't believe that it matters how you get introduced to these places. So if your initial interest is to uh, get a selfie because you're more interested in the external motivation of likes for a post to Instagram or Twitter, that's fine because it got you there. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe when you leave that external motivation is the only one you have, but the act of getting you there to take that picture or that selfie or whatever it might be is the only way to make those connections to these protected areas. Yes, we can watch these things online. Yes, we can have virtual experiences and those things do have some, some impact. Julie and I actually did a project up in Katmai National Park in Alaska, where we looked at the difference between on-site bear viewing, which the, the brown bears at, at Katmai are the big draw at Brooks Camp. Sure. So on-site viewing of the bears. And then they also have through explore.org a, uh, a webcam, which people are always looking at. They get millions of people that watch these bears. And we found out that, that people actually had a stronger connection to the bears when they watched them online than they did in person. And we found out one of the main drivers of that was the people at Brooks Camp in Alaska only viewed those bears for a couple hours, whereas the people online viewed them for many days in some cases. So that connection months, right. And they were even watching these bear videos when, when the bears were hibernating, they're still watching the bear videos and talking to each other. So that certainly is an avenue, but we also heard stories related to that, that people watching these videos were then motivated to go see them in person, right? So you can build the connections virtually, but I don't think there's any stronger tie that that can get somebody interested in in parks and protected areas over a long period of time than experiencing them so to me it doesn't matter how you get them it's it's just presenting that opportunity to do that yeah yeah now your program right now parks and pines that's uh, specific to k-state no uh, that's that's julie and i's personal thing um i'm a professor at k-state and and Julie is uh, kind of a research associate with us, but Parks and Pines is a separate, sharp family endeavor. Right, right. But as far as its reach, it's not a national program yet. 
Not yet. Yes, exactly. Not yet. We're, we are hoping to spread it further. We're actually at the end of the month moving to Athens, Georgia for six months. Ryan will be on sabbatical. He's going to teach a couple classes at University of Georgia and we're going to live in Athens and hopefully start spreading parks and pints there as well. So we're hoping to start getting it out more nationally. Yeah, we, we have this, this idea that a lot, so right now we're basing some of our, our scholarship opportunities through universities. That's not to say that we can't do it to younger people in the future, but there's plenty of research that show college age students are still developing their thoughts and their desires and motivations. So it's, it's still a good audience to, to target. But our idea is, is, you know, there's universities everywhere that have programs similar to what, what I work in at K-State, which is a park management and conservation program. And there's protected areas in these places too. It doesn't have, a, national parks are a great place to start, but it can be a state park. It can be a local park. It could be a forest. It could be BLM, uh, Bureau of Land Management. Uh, it doesn't really matter. But the goal, the long-term goal is to try to expand that to these places where those connections exist and, and develop those relationships with those communities to offer scholarships specifically to K-State, to University of Georgia, to University of Florida, whatever the case may be. So do you, do you work with individual parks to identify projects that students might apply for a grant to perform? Yes, that's the goal. So uh, again, we kind of got sidetracked by COVID, which, you know, is, is a common excuse these days, but it, it is it is what it is. And we will be giving out our first scholarship in the spring of 2022. And the idea is to have either a partner identified, or if a student comes up with a pre-existing relationship with a park or protected area, we can entertain that too. We have a good relationship with Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve, which is an hour south of, of Manhattan, Kansas. Uh, we have a good relationship with Cimarron National Grasslands, which is in Western Kansas. Uh, a couple of state parks, uh, one state park called Little Jerusalem Badlands State Park. It's actually the newest state park in Kansas. So we, we can help identify those, those types of opportunities if students don't have specific ones. And also something we talked about too. So Manhattan Brewing Company in, in Manhattan, they, they developed a beer for us and they gave us a dollar of that towards uh, our scholarships. Something they said is like, well, maybe we can help too identify something that a student might want to do. So maybe there's an opportunity for somebody to grow a hop garden near, you know, either on or near a, a state park or, or protected area or something like that. So there's, a community hop garden. Right. Like, yeah. So any, anyway, and then that could expand into, you know, creating another beer from those hops that were grown by the student that got the scholarship. So we're hoping eventually to build that kind of synergy where it just kind of starts building on itself. Right. But but with the, the national parks, I mean, obviously you have to have conversations with the park staff to identify worthwhile projects. Absolutely. And, and I don't think that's going to be an issue. And at least in my experience, um, anytime that I've gone to a park and said, I have an interest in doing something or a student has an interest in doing something, as long as it's not degrading the resource or harassing the visitors, they'll, they'll, they'll say yes. <laughs> and it's because there's so many things, as you know, there's so many things in parks that just aren't happening uh, just because they don't have the money, they don't have the time, they don't have the resources or the staff. 
So uh, many times they're, they're happy just to have somebody interested to, to do something in their park. And if we can identify a need on top of that, obviously that's, that's the best case scenario. Sure. We're talking today with Professor Ryan Sharp and his wife, Julie. Uh, Ryan operates the Applied Park Science Lab at um, K-State University in Manhattan, and his wife is a research associate. They both have interesting Park Service backgrounds. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at BRPFoundation.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. All right, we're back with Ryan and Julie. So, Ryan, where do you get the funds to provide for these grants? I mean, you mentioned the uh, the uh, the brewery connection. Where, where else? I mean, these even if you're just given a five hundred or a thousand dollar grant, I mean, th- those add up pretty quickly. I think actually, I think Julie might be better suited to answer this one uh, because she's worked on a couple specific things related to fundraising. That she's she's the she's the CFO, if you will. So. So far, what we've done, like we mentioned the beer that was brewed for us. Um, we also have tap handles right now, currently just there, we have one place in town, restaurant bar that has a, one of our tap handles and a dollar from every pour of that beer comes to us. We had also started doing a lecture series at a local science center where we would sell our merchandise and our friend, who owns a bar here in town would come and sell beer at it because it has to have the whole Parks and Pints theme going on at it. And we have a website as well where we sell our merchandise. And so far, that's pretty much all we've done. 
Am I forgetting something? No, but I, I think the between the collaborations with with breweries in in brewing park specific beers and the the tap handle idea. So just to elaborate on the tap handle ideas, basically we have a, a tap handle. If you've ever been to a bar, maybe you haven't, but never, if you've never been to <laughs> right. So uh, for your listeners that maybe have not been to a bar before. Um, the, the the tap handles, you know, you pull on it and it pours beer. And uh, what we did is we created tap handles that that have our logo on it, the Parks and Pines logo, with a park ranger hat on it. And the idea behind that is that's an easy way for us to generate revenue with with partners that are willing to do that with us. We only have it in one place now. Again, this is burgeoning. We're 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 just starting to get back going after after uh, COVID. But I did forget one thing. We have also so far sponsored one event. Mm. There was um, one of the classes in the program Ryan teaches, and they it was an event management class, and they did a cornhole tournament, and we were a sponsor. I'm sorry. Did a what? Cornhole. <laughs> it's a yard. <I'm> sorry. <laughs> it's a uh, it's bean bags. You throw bean bags in a hole. Oh, okay. At boards with holes in them. <laughs> it's very popular with the children. Okay. So they had a tournament and they gave us half the proceeds from it, came to Parks and Pints, and we gave them some things to give as prizes. Yeah. We will be sponsoring more events like that, hopefully. Right. But that's kind of the the the, the tap handles, the the uh, brewing beers with collaborating breweries, events, uh, merchandise sales, and you know, other things that might present themselves to us it's really kind of diversifying the different things that we can do, but it's all related to community right now. It's just Manhattan, Kansas, but all of these things are community based. So building those relationships within the community uh, is, is one of our main goals. And in, in terms of expanding it, so national park service, as, as maybe you've talked about, or maybe with some of the, the previous guests that have been on park service employees tend to move a lot. So for us having our experience with the park service, we know people in 50 different towns in this country, if not more. more. So that actually gives us not necessarily a unique ability to expand this into different places, but we do certainly have enough connections that uh, we, you know, we, we have a friend in Albuquerque who said she might be willing to help us. We have family in Tampa that said they might be willing to help us, right? So we, we have a large network that we can draw on to hopefully expand this in the future. Well, that's good. Uh, networks are always good. That's, uh, I think, a key to any fundraising campaign is having a good network across the country. Now, Ryan, w- what's this applied park science lab that you you work in at K State? What's that all about? Right. So I've I've uh, I've, I've my my main goal in life essentially is to uh, have a very fine line between what I like to do personally and what I do professionally. So. Uh, all I think about pretty much all day long is parks. Um, huh, that's unusual. <laughs> uh, so the, the parks and pines piece is, is a, is a personal endeavor to satisfy that want and desire to think about parks, but my professional itch is kind of scratched through my, my university position at Kansas state university in the park management conservation program, where I'm, uh, currently an associate professor and, the Applied Park Science Lab, as the name implies, is dedicated to doing projects in parks and protected areas that help answer concrete questions for managers. So, for example, I see your, your background 
here. We're looking at you on Zoom. Your background is 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 uh, Grand Canyon National Park. We're doing a project at Grand Canyon to understand use from the rim to rim corridor, which is one of the most popular uh, hikes in the park, especially in early uh, in May and October when it opens and closes. There's been some reported conflict between runners and hikers and mules um, uh, and just day trippers that are taking a small hike down the Bright Angel Trail or the South Kaibab or North Kaibab. So my, my job and the Applied Park Science Lab's job, especially the graduate students that are in it, is to understand those relationships. So how do we identify conflict? How do we resolve conflict? How do we manage these areas to provide the visitor experience that is mandated by law at Grand Canyon, for example, while still preserving or conserving is the more appropriate word perhaps, preserving by law, but conserving by practice these areas for future generations. So that's a lot of the stuff that we do in the lab. Not, not to put you on the spot, but to put you on the spot, crowds in national parks have become an incredible problem for places like Grand Canyon or uh, Zion National Park comes to mind. Arches National Park, I think at uh, two minutes after nine today, they, they close the entrance because the park was quote unquote full. Uh, Yellowstone gets millions of people, Yosemite. I could go on and on and on, Great Smoky Mountains. How do you think the Park Service should deal with that? <laughs> I guess I need to be careful here. Um, I mean, there's- Nobody's there's... listening. <laughs> well, I don't know if that's, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Um, again, this is one of those questions that has no easy answer. And, and I'm pretty aware that you know that, but- the things, so your example of arches, what do you do about that? You close the gate. Rocky Mountain National Park had reservations through COVID to reduce the amount of people. And they're keeping it, at least for the short term, they're keeping the reservation system. So if you want to hike, Bear, is it Bear Lake? Is that, I think it's Bear Lake. Bear Lake. Hike Bear Lake, which is the most popular hike in that park, you got to get a reservation or you can't do it. Now, people get upset about reservations. They get upset about lotteries and restricting use. These are our public lands. We pay taxes to, to have access to them. And I understand that argument. But the reservation system and things like that to reduce use may be one of the only mechanisms that we have left to you know, make sure these places are meeting their goals and achieving their desired conditions. And that's experiential conditions, like so visitor, visitor interactions, but also the natural resources. I mean, uh, Zion closed, closed the doors, what, uh, 20 years ago, and you can't drive in anymore. That was an unpopular decision at the time in 2000, 1999. But they've been surveying people for the last 15, 20 years. And guess what? People like the shuttle system now for the most part, right? They got used to it. They came to accept the reason for having it. Now, of course, at Zion, there's, you know, two hour waits to get on the shuttle, um, which is a, a separate problem. But those those types of mechanisms are just going to become more and more common if the goal is to maintain these places and, and what they were set aside for. And unfortunately, this becomes a political football sometimes, as I'm sure you're well aware. Right. So the previous administration, the Trump administration, was very interested in open access uh, not restricting use. I'm not quite sure what the Biden administration stance is yet. We haven't gotten far enough, but 
it, it kind of depends on the political uh, philosophy of the administration in power for how these places can be managed and who the secretary of the interior is and who the, uh, you know, the head of the park service is. But in my mind, these reservation systems, although inconvenient and, and redu reduces the opportunity for spontaneity, which a lot of people say is important to them, it, it may be the only way forward. No, I, I think you're right. And, and it's a, definitely a complicated question and the answers are very elusive because a perfect example, I mean, for many people, Yellowstone National Park is a once in a lifetime visit. They might save up for years and, and they go out there and they want to run all over the park and see as much as they can in, in a short window of time. And I'm fortunate in that I live <clears throat> roughly half a day from Yellowstone National Park. And so I can go up there, you know, several times a year. And those are two very different experiences. You know, the person who it's a one time, I'm going to be there for three days, four days, I want to make the most out of it, versus somebody who goes there, you know, two or more times a year, year after year after year, and they're searching, I think, for a different experience. Is that, is that safe to say? Yeah, absolutely. And, and the more times you go to a park or the more park and uh, visitation experience you have, the more able you are to satisfy the needs that you want, right? So the first time visitor has no baseline, first of all. So uh, even if there's 6 million of your best friends there at the time, it may not be ideal, but you have nothing to compare it to. And you're so excited about being at the Grand Canyon or Yellowstone or Yosemite that you're okay with that because that one-time visit's like you know what this is the, it's it's awesome i've been planning for this forever but as you get more experience you know how to avoid those crowds if that's what you want to do you know how to you know i want to i want to experience solitude you'll know how to do that it's you becoming know? harder and harder though well maybe um most you have to go further and further i guess or you have to substitute yellowstone with Bridger Teton National Forest, right? Um, they're not a one-to-one -one experience, right? You're not gonna be in Bridger Teton and, and have geysers and those kinds of things, but ecosystem is relatively similar and you could find solitude in Bridger Teton easier than you could at Yellowstone. Although if you, if you get more than a mile or two off the main roads, you're gonna find your solitude. That's, Usually, most people yeah. don't venture too far away. Um, you, Go ahead. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, we, we, uh, I did a study at Theodore Roosevelt National Park up in North Dakota, and we actually gave people little GPS trackers that they took with them into the park. And the south unit of that park is mostly a driving route. So it's, it's like a loop. Um, there is one way to get off of the loop, but most people don't take it. So it's more or less a closed system. And we asked, you know, we turned the GPS on for them. They put it in their pocket. They forgot about it. They gave it back to us at the end of the day. So out of, you know, the people that we sampled, which was, you know, 500 to 1,000 people with those GPS units, the average strayed from their car about 0.6 miles. So that's only one example, but it's a good example of that most people are not really going too far away. So again, the more experience you have, the, the better you are able to meet the goals for why you're going to a particular place. Have you duplicated that experiment at, say, a, a Great Smoky Mountains or um, or Shenandoah even or, or an Everglades? 
That's that's a that's I know where you're going with that. That's a that's a great that's a great point. Uh, no, we haven't. But if uh, anybody has any funding for that, I'm happy to pursue it. <laughs> I mean, I've been to Theodore Roosevelt and I enjoy it. And um, I'm not sure I went too far off the beaten path. Right. Yeah, but it's 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 finding those the the first time visitor is is definitely in many I shouldn't say definitely, but in many cases is is not the same as that person that goes several times a year. There are instances where they're not all that different, but in terms of the type of experience that they're seeking and the type of experience they're okay with, right, mm-hmm. is, is definitely different. Yeah, yeah. We're all, we're all searching for insights into what today's park visitors are searching for. And, uh, you know, I was thinking a lot about that and, and trying to come up with a column in, in terms of, you know, that question, what do you want? in terms of a national park experience. Do you want to go there and capture as many selfies as you can? Do you want to play wildlife bingo? Do you want to seek solitude? I mean, these are all questions that must be weighing heavily on on the park managers as well as intriguing the park researchers like yourself. Yeah, I, I mean, can I can I turn the tables and ask you what you think about that? In terms of what I'm searching for, or in terms of what I think, well, what, the visitors... what, do you, what do you think people want? Well, I think it, I think it does run the gamut, and it, and that's the the problem that the park manager has to deal with. Is you know there is that segment that wants the solitude, that doesn't want to be joined by five thousand of their best friends waiting for old faithful to erupt. You know what's interesting um, at Yellowstone and, and probably many other parks. They do visitor use surveys from time to time, and the park always comes back and says, well, geez, we've got a, a 90% approval rating of what, of what we're doing. And it kind of goes back to what I was talking about before in terms of, you know, if this is your one-time visit to Yellowstone, and you've checked off Old Faithful, and you've seen wolves, and you've seen a grizzly bear, and you were fortunate enough to see um, Steamboat Geyser go off, you don't care about the time spent searching for a parking space at the Norris Geyser Basin. You don't think too much about the, the big tour buses pulling up to the front door of the um, Old Faithful Lodge. You know, for you, you've, you've seen some ex- incredible experiences. And so for you, yes, it was a, a 90 to 95 or maybe even 100% wonderful trip versus that repeat visitor who is tired of searching for a parking space who is tired of the, the, the napkins and trash going across the parking lot. So I think it, it can be misleading. Um, and I might hear from the superintendent about this, but I think, I think those surveys can be misleading and, you know, I'm just a writer. I'm not a, uh, a sociologist and I, I don't devise, um, those surveys to try and make sure they are accurate. I mean, maybe you can give some insights to those, Ryan. Well, I got some thoughts on that. Um, so uh, I, I am my by training, I'm a social scientist. So the 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 survey portion of it is is kind of the bread and butter of of what I do. I've been getting more into some geospatial stuff lately, but the the survey, I, I'm not exactly sure the the one you're talking about, but the the parks have had over the course of the last 20, 30 years these kind of satisfaction surveys, right? So they they tell you how satisfied somebody is. So the question is more or less, how satisfied were you with your visit? How satisfied were you with 
the education services, if you used any, how satisfied were you with the bathrooms, yada, yada, yada. And then they tally that into a score at the bottom. And as you said, 95% say Yellowstone's awesome. There's some sampling problems with that, the way that those samples were, those samples were derived. They're cross-sectional, so it's usually one or two weeks during the summer, which is not necessarily representative all the time. They're not always random in how they're distributed. Uh, you know, a lot of times the park staff are the one doing that, and they're doing the best they can. So I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm not beating them up. It's more of a, a process thing than it is the, the National Park Service employees. But those, those, those Americans can't agree on anything, but you know what they can agree about is they like parks, right? So I don't think that's ever up for debate. But if we really want to dive into it, some of the things that you were talking about, so kind of this expectancy thing, right? So if I'm a first time visitor, and let's just say I'm driving my family from New York out to Yellowstone, uh, I've planned properly to make sure that I'm going to do all the things I need to do, which is very important. Uh, spontaneity is cool, but I, people should plan. It's better that way. If, if I'm taking my family out there and I got my two kids, uh, hopefully they don't have their dog with them, but let's just say for the sake of this argument, they have their dog. It's going to be great. I mean, short of, you know, everybody's seen family vacation. Everybody's seen the Griswolds. We all understand that experience. And to some extent, yeah, that's kind of a silly movie, but it's true, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to be so happy when we get to Wally World, AKA Yellowstone in this example, what happened to get there is totally forgotten because you're in this amazing place. So your expectations play into how you report your experience. That's, that's number one. Number two, when it comes to surveys like that, we have this idea of displacement. So a lot of times when you do on-site surveys, you're talking to the people who are there, who are, you know, they're there, so they want to be there, at least hypothetically, and they're probably having a good time. You want a mix of repeat visitors and first-time visitors to make sure your sample is representative. But the people who would report that their experience is no longer acceptable are gone, right? right. They're displaced already. That more experienced visitor is, is at Bridger Teton National Forest or they're at the Frank Church Wilderness of No Return because they don't want to see any people, right? So it-, it There's a lot of people of the, there. What's that? There's a lot of people there. Well, Frank Church. <laughs> rel relative to Yellowstone, relative. I suppose. Uh, or, or a lot of people like myself, um, the only time I go to a park between Memorial Day and Labor Day is for work. You know, if I want to have an enjoyable vacation, quote unquote, I'll try and go outside of those, those holidays. And, and I'm fortunate enough in that, you know, my, my kids are grown. And so I'm not corralled by the school calendar. And so... I don't ever recall being asked to complete a survey during those periods of the year. So that's a great point. And that's a great point. I mean, the, the studies that we do when funding is available, we try to do three to four seasons of data collection to make sure that it's representative of, of folks like yourself and folks like us who are bound by the school calendar. But one more thing about that too, is that expectations are not always the same. So you, you uh, mentioned earlier that you've been on the planet for seven decades, roughly. Um, congratulations on that. Uh, so did I, did feels I, like eight sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but for, for, for my wife and I, for Julie and I, before we had children, we had one set of expectations and we were seeking out one set of experiences. Our first experience in a park was in the back of a Honda Element that we slept in for three weeks, right? We could do that with our kids, but I wouldn't recommend it, right? <laughs> so 
our, our experiences have changed just since we've had children and the things that we're willing to tolerate. I don't want to go to Yellowstone in July. I, I, um, do you? No. Right. So, so ne- neither one of us are interested. Yeah. My neighbors want to do that, but our kids can only go there in July. You know what I mean? So we, we have to adjust our expectations. So there's a lot of social psychology and a lot of theories related to that and how people create their mindsets before they get them, before they get there, that will influence how they respond to something like a survey. Yeah. No, my neighbors are taking their two young children to, to Yellowstone in July, and they're going to be camping at Madison Campground for five days. And I I said, God bless you. <laughs> Let me know how that goes. We camped at, um, was it the Green River Campground in Dinosaur? Yes. With our in, kids. in July with Split our kids. So it, at um, Dinosaur National Monument. Yeah, I think it's a Split Mountain Campground on the on the Green River. Yeah, I, I know it was on the Green River. I guess that was the name of the camera. I, I was just going to say it was July and it was so hot. Yeah. It was awful. But, but you know what? The, the kids loved it. Oh, yeah. The kids <laughs> absolutely loved it. And that's a great example of of the change in expectations. You know, we're, we're kind of running out of time, but I've, I've got an interesting question, at least interesting to me. And I'd be curious to your thoughts on this. With the crowding that we're seeing, and and granted, it is just you know a handful of parks out of the 423 or so. Um, it's really just a small handful, but it seems to be the parks that everybody wants to go to. Is there a need to adopt some sort of reservation system to ensure they get the best possible experience? Oh, that is a difficult and loaded question. Um, I I think a lot of the discussion that we just had can support a reservation system, but also refute the institution of a reservation system, right? So for the people that are bound by season, so families, for example, are we being fair with a reservation system? I don't know. If people are more flexible and can go at the shoulder seasons, shoulder seasons, which are becoming larger and larger shoulders, but that seems more reasonable for those people with more time flexibility. The spontaneity, spontaneity piece where people want to just go and have the great American road trip, reservation systems can accommodate that to a certain extent. You can build in some some. Uh, spontaneous visits, but again, you're, you're eliminating some of that by doing it. And one thing about that, and, and I've done a couple studies related to this is you, we ask question on a survey of people. One of the first things we ask is, you know, did you plan? How did you plan? How far in advance did you plan? Right. And it's not the same, you know, parks in Washington, DC are going to have different time frames than a park in Montana, but in general, people plan ahead to go on these trips. In, in the spontaneity piece, I think is a bit of a relic, if, if I'm being honest. I, I, I might be wrong, and I'm, some of my colleagues might disagree with me, but people plan. We're not gonna get in our car with our two kids and just say, yeah, we're going to Craters of the Moon. No, I, I wouldn't do that. Maybe that's my own personal problem, but I, I, people do plan, they plan ahead. So a reservation system, based on that metric alone 
there'd be some pushback, right? But people would get used to it. And again, the larger part of your question, I think, is to preserve what experience? So if I remember your your question correctly, is do we need to have a reservation system to, to uh, keep the, the national park experience? That's the real hard part about that question, is what is, what is that? It's different to uh, a 29-year-old Ryan and Julie than a 45-year-old Ryan and Julie than a 75-year-old Ryan and Julie, if we make it that far, right? Oh, absolutely. It's a generational thing. So that's, that's a really, that's what makes this question so hard. Reservation systems like objectively make sense for preservation or conservation of the resource for a better visitor experience in general. But that experience is so diverse that it's so hard to manage for just one. There's no such thing as the average visitor, right? Uh, uh, Bob Manning, who is a researcher in the University of Vermont forever in the Park Studies Lab, he wrote a book in 2011 talking about that. There is no average visitor, but we try to manage parks for that average visitor. And when we do that, we often end up managing for nothing, right? right. Not, not always, and I'm, and I'm speaking in generalities, but that's what makes that question so hard. And that's why I'm glad I'm not a park manager because they are, they are incredibly tough questions. Well, that's, that's why I like doing research instead of managing a park. So. <laughs> We've been talking today with Ryan and Julie Sharp. Uh, Ryan is a professor at uh, K-State University in applied park science. And Julie is a research associate. They both have backgrounds in the National Park Service. And um, it's been a fascinating discussion. And they're also running, a, a, or bootstrapping maybe is a better word, a, a program to help students get out into the parks. And I'm guessing we're talking college students here with um, their Parks and Pines program, which is designed to um, create a fund that scholarships can be given to help underwrite um, research in a national park or a state park or a city park, I guess. If people want to send you donations to help you with that effort, where can they send them? Our website is parks, the letter N, pints.com. And um, the email address is the same, parksandpints at gmail.com. So if anyone has questions or wants to help us out, they can contact us those ways. And it's, it's not a, a fully-fledged nonprofit um, organization right now, but it, it's an important role that you guys are trying to fill and I don't think it matters if people can claim a tax deduction or not it's a it's a worthy cause Ryan and Julie it's been a great conversation today we'll have to get back and and, and get back down into the weeds because there are definitely some some weedy issues involving national parks that are worth discussing I appreciate your thoughts today yes thank you very much thank you that's our show for this week we hope you enjoyed it Certainly, getting today's youth enamored and involved with the parks and sciences tied to the outdoors in general is a noble effort, and we applaud Ryan and Julie Sharp for their work in that arena. Now, in the coming weeks, Lynn Riddick will be talking Santa Monica Mountains Mountain Lions with Beth Pratt of the National Wildlife Federation, and Lynn also will be visiting Fort McHenry National Monument and Historic Shrine for a special Fourth of July podcast. I'm sure you'll find both episodes informative and entertaining. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. 
Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.